being dismissed for junior church. Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 29 and verse 31. The title of our message this morning is Jacob's Dozen, and since there's a dozen, we may not get through all twelve, so this will be Jacob's Dozen, part one. This uh, really becomes a pivotal point in the book of Genesis where, as we have studied, God is raising up the nation of Israel, as he's dealing specifically with the patriarch Jacob. And one of the things that's happened to Jacob, actually two things, as he's been in Haran fleeing the wrath of his brother Esau, is now he has two wives. The first wife he was sort of tricked into marrying, Leah, The second one is the one who he had his affection set on, Rachel. And now he has these two wives, and what we're going to start to learn is where the tribes of Israel came from. The tribes of Israel are a big deal in the Bible. In fact, In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, it will be the 12 tribes of Israel that will evangelize planet Earth after the church has been removed from this earth. Revelation, chapter 7, explains that. And as you sort of move through our end time sequence after the tribulation period is going to come a thousand-year kingdom... And the tribes of Israel are going to be very prevalent in that thousand-year kingdom. In Matthew 19, verse 28, it says, And Jesus said to them, that would be his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And as you kind of move beyond the thousand-year kingdom into the eternal state, and we've used this graphic before, I think, on Resurrection Sunday, there's coming a city. Uh, The city is sort of laid out like a cube. I'm of the perspective that the city currently exists. It's in heaven. It's just not fit to come to planet Earth because this Earth is polluted by sin. And so it's waiting for a new heavens, a new Earth. Let's watch that one more time, shall we? It's coming to planet Earth and it's going to be laid out like a cube. And in essence, there's going to be three gates on each side of the city, 12 gates total, And each of those gates, as you walk in and out of it throughout all of eternity, is going to be named after one of the twelve tribes. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 12, it says of this city, It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. The reason I bring up some of this information is a lot of people say, ah, that's just a bunch of genealogical stuff. I don't, I don't really care about the twelve tribes. Well, you better care because every time you walk in and out of a gate throughout all eternity, you're going to see that name of one of the twelve tribes. As far as God is concerned, the twelve tribes of Israel are a big, big deal. And the issue becomes, well, where did they come from? It's interesting that as you go through the Bible, the Bible never re-explains itself. It will lay down a principle. Maybe it will add more clarity down the road. But it never gives you the foundational principle all over again. It's sort of like a professor reviewing for the test. 
at the end of the semester, when he does the review, he doesn't reteach the whole course. Now, I'm a former college teacher myself. Sometimes I felt like I wanted to reteach the course, but <laughs> I didn't do it. I just kind of rearticulated some basics because we already laid the foundation. This is the problem with modern Bible readers who jump all around as they're reading the Bible. They get to Revelation 7. Ooh, the 12 tribes are a big deal. Matthew 19, verse 28. Ooh, the 12 tribes are a big deal. The eternal state. Oh, those 12 tribes are a big deal. Where did they come from? How come the book of Revelation is not telling me where these 12 tribes come from? Well, God expects us to read the beginning of his book and have that foundational knowledge before we get to the end of his book. That's how the Bible is laid out. And because your average Christian really doesn't have patience with the word of God, they'll grab a passage here or there and they'll sort of be frustrated with incomplete information when in reality God explained the whole thing at the beginning. The book of Genesis has so many foundational truths. That's why I wanted to cover this book with our church. One of which is the beginning of the nation of Israel. And part of the beginning of the nation of Israel is the beginning of the 12 tribes. And so now we have Jacob's dozen. Jacob is the progenitor of the 12 tribes from four different women. Oh, what kind of morals is that? My goodness. Um, We'll talk about that. The law of God, which prohibits adultery, would not be given for another six centuries. And that's not to let Jacob, etc. off the hook, because one of the great themes of the book of Genesis is that God can take a messy situation and turn it into something great. And I bring this up because a lot of you, a lot of us come from messy situations. And we think, well, my, my past is not that great. My past is not that pristine. We have to understand the sovereignty of God, how God can take a very messy situation and turn it around for good. In fact, that's sort of the conclusion of the book of Genesis in chapter 50 and verse 20. Or Joseph to his brothers, I mean, that was a messy situation there, says, as for you, you meant it for, you meant it against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. What a messy situation that was, Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, left for dead in a pit. Joseph later confronts his brothers in Egypt and says, what you intended for evil, God used for good to get the nation out of Canaan into Egypt to receive grain in the midst of famine. That is the kind of thing that goes on all the way through the book of Genesis, and that's what's happening here with these 12 tribes. So you'll notice here Leah's four sons. Leah is Jacob's first wife who he really did not want. As we have studied, he was actually tricked by Laban into marrying her. And from Jacob and Leah are going to come uh, four sons. First of all, notice God's providence in the whole thing. Genesis chapter 29 and verse 31, it says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. And he opened her womb, but Rachel, the woman he did love, Rachel was barren. Now, some of your translations, if you're reading this from the King James Bible, for example, it will read something like this. It will say, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... Does any of your versions say that? Genesis 29, verse 31, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. I want to communicate the fact that Jacob did not hate Leah. Jacob chose Rachel over Leah, 
And many times in the Bible, that language of hate is used for selection or choice. Hating someone is not emotionally hating them. It's just the fact that you did not choose them. And this becomes a big deal because at some point in your Bible study as a Christian, you're going to run into Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. Malachi 1, verse 3, but says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And you're going to read that and you're going to think, wow, God, God hates people. But that really doesn't make any sense, you'll say to yourself, because John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Well, how does God so loved the world correlate with Malachi 1, 2, and 3, which says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated? What it's talking about there is a selection or a choice. I'm of the view that it's not even a selection for salvation, as many teach. It's a selection concerning through which lineage, genealogy, the Messiah would come. The Messianic lineage would not go through Esau's line. It would go through Jacob's line. And that's why God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Sometimes hatred in the Bible, we bring our own definition into it, but it just means a lack of choice. That's all it means. And if you don't understand this, you'll start to think, well, God hates people. Let me give you an example. Jesus, in Luke 14, verse 26, when he was laying out the requirements for discipleship, said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, wow, yes, he cannot... Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if you read that and you say, wow, for me to be a disciple of Christ, I've got to hate my father and mother, my wife, my children. And yet you say to yourself, well, that can't be what God is saying, because in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is very clear that the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, how could I ever hate my wife? How could I ever hate my children? I'm supposed to bring them up in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. How could I hate my mother and father? Doesn't one of the Ten Commandments, I think it's commandment number five, say honor your mother and father? How does that correlate with Jesus saying to be his disciple, I've got to hate my own mother and father? Well, the the issue or the answer is related to choice. Becoming a disciple of Jesus, growing in discipleship, means you're confronted with choices constantly. Mom and dad say one thing, and Jesus says something else. Jesus says in that instance, you've got to make a choice to substitute my will over theirs. You're making a choice. And using biblical vernacular, you're hating your mother and father, but you're not hating them in the emotional sense. All you're doing is saying there's a conflict here. Jesus says do A. Mom and dad say do B. I'm going to go with A. And if I'm not willing to go with A over B in terms of making a choice, then I may be a Christian, but I'm really not walking out discipleship. I may be a believer, but I'm not walking out discipleship. And so when it says in the King James Version, kind of cycling this back to Jacob and Leah, when it says in the King James Version, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It's not saying that Jacob hated Leah. It's simply saying that Jacob, his heart was set on Rachel. He chose Rachel over Leah. In fact, the reason he had Leah to begin with is he was deceived into marrying Leah. So Leah, obviously feeling unchosen by her husband, is sort of in a, in a state of sadness, as any woman or man, for that matter, in this kind of circumstance would feel. It says, verse 31, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. 
And he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Notice what God did for Leah in her unloved state. He opened Leah's womb, but not Rachel's womb. Why did God do that for Leah? Because God loves people. God loves everybody. He saw her in this kind of condition, and he made a providential step to open her womb, I guess to sort of compensate for some of the deficiency, perhaps, that she was uh, experiencing in marriage life. And there's a lot of people out there, folks, that will tell you that God doesn't love everybody. Very, very sadly, Calvinism, Reformed theology, is filled with this idea. Here's one of the strongest Calvinists that I know of in his book, The Sovereignty of God. A.W. Pink says, the fact is that the love of God is a truth for the saints only. In like manner, the world, in John chapter 3, verse 16, in the final analysis, refers to the world of God's people. So when John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world, what he's saying is God doesn't love everybody. God just loves the saints. God just loves the elect. And I'm here to tell you folks that I reject that type of teaching from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And there's a lot of uh, space in between the two, by the way, because it, it is not what the Bible says. God loves everybody. Now, certainly the saints who have trusted in Christ are the beneficiaries of what Christ did for them, and the unsaved are not. But that doesn't change the fact that God doesn't love everybody. He loves everybody. He didn't just love Rachel. He loved Leah too. And he actually did something here special for Leah, the unloved partner in this uh, threesome, so to speak, to help her. And what happens to Leah is she has four sons. And from these four sons come now the first four of the twelve tribes in Israel, the first four of Jacob's dozen. Reuben's birth, verse 32, Simeon's birth, verse 33, Levi's birth, verse 34, Judah's birth, verse 35. Let's take a look at these. Notice, first of all, Reuben's birth. Verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has seen, important word, my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. So here comes Reuben. The name Reuben in Hebrew literally means, see ye a son. See ye a son. See. The reason Jehovah has looked, it's the Hebrew word ra'ah, where part of this name Reuben is derived The Lord has looked upon my affliction, Leah says. And she sort of concludes there, verse 34, Surely now my husband will love me. I gave him his firstborn, Reuben. Now watch Leah's growth. It's very interesting. In her unloved state, her goal is her husband's affection. Her husband's attention because her husband did not choose her, but chose Rachel. She wants to be in the place of Rachel. In other words, she is trying to find her identity in somebody else, which is idolatry. We will never be happy or content in the things of God as long as my value comes from what somebody else thinks about me. We have to reach a point in our Christian life, we have to reach a point in our Christian development where, you know, you can fall in love with Jesus and believe in him and then become his disciple and do exactly what he tells you to do and there's a lot of people that won't like you because you've done just that. You cannot identify your value 
from what somebody else thinks. If your value is coming from what somebody else thinks, then you're going to be perpetually unhappy because you really can't control, can you, what other people think about you. Whether they like you or dislike you to a large extent, unless you're just rude, crude, and obnoxious, which, of course, nobody in here is. The rude, crude, and obnoxious people are in the other church down the street, not not this church. But the truth of the matter is there's absolutely no control you have over that situation. I mean, I have people that love me. I have people that hate my guts. I have no, I have no real understanding why person A likes me and person B doesn't. There's all kinds of things that are going on in people's hearts related to motives that I can't see. God sees it. I can't see it. And so at some point, you know, my value really doesn't come from what people like or dislike or think. It comes from my relationship with God. Leah, with these first three sons, to, to my mind, is attaching her value based on her husband not choosing her or choosing her. And you're going to see that mindset in the birth of the first three sons. But by the time we get to Judah, son number four, she grows beyond it. So Reuben is born. Here comes uh, son number two, second tribe of Israel, Simeon, verse 33, Genesis 29. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard. You notice with uh, Reuben it was see, but with Simeon it is heard. The Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. Simeon means hearing. The reason she named him Simeon is because she said, Jehovah has heard that I am unchosen. He's seen it, birth of Reuben, that's what his name, where his name comes from. He's heard it, birth of Simeon, second son. And then we have son number three. I was going to call this uh, sermon, My Three Sons, but there's four there. And there's more coming, as we're going to see. Now we have Levi. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me. You should underline that word attached. Because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name was Levi. Levi means attached. Simeon is hearing. Reuben is sight. Surely my husband, who has not chosen me, is now become, going to become attached to me. I gave him his first three sons, the first three that would become the first three in the twelve tribes of Israel. Now my husband Jacob will become attached to me, Leah, because I have borne him three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Now what has happened here is a huge deal because it's through Levi that the priests are ultimately going to come. In fact, to be a priest in ancient Israel, you had to have been from the tribe of Levi. In other words, you had to have Levi in your genes. Sorry. You had to have Levi genes. Sorry about that. And i got to keep you awake somehow. And you had to be a descendant of Aaron. So if you were a descendant of Aaron and you had Levi genes, you could be a priest. In fact, at Mount Sinai, there's going to be a whole book written for these guys called the Book of Leviticus. And now comes Judah. Verse 35. She, that's Leah, conceived again. And bore a son and said, this time I will praise, who's she praising? The Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And she stopped bearing. Now she's going to bear a couple more, but she stopped bearing for the time being. And now along comes Judah. Judah means praise. Yada from the Hebrew, 
where Judah's name comes from, to praise. You see what's happening here to Leah? Her focus was on her husband. First three sons. Surely my husband will be attached to me. Surely the Lord has seen what has happened to me. Surely the Lord has heard what has happened to me. And by the time number four comes along, her focus is on God. That's growth. Growth is not deriving your value from the opinions of people that are close to you. Your value has to come from God himself who cannot lie. That's how you move into liberation or freedom in the Christian life. It's not that you're rude to people and and terse, but the truth of the matter is their opinion of you one way or the other really doesn't have a lot of significance at the end of the day. It's what does God think? There, there have been many times in my life where I've come home to my wife sort of depressed. You know, this, this person said this, and that person said that, and this person doesn't like me, and, you know, woe is me. Poor me, poor me, pour me another drink, you know, kind of mentality. And my wife will just say, well, what does God think? Wow, it's a different way of thinking. This person's unhappy with me. She says, well, I think God is happy with what you're doing here. Oh, wow. That, that certainly takes a lot of weight off, doesn't it? What does God think? You know, doing your life to an audience of one. What, what does God think at the end of the day? Not how many people are singing your choruses or praising your name. What does the Lord think? Because after all, his opinion should take precedence. He's the... Creator of the heavens and the earth. I think what's happening to Leah is focus is coming off a person and onto God. And she's growing. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes this, In the naming of the first three sons, Leah named them with a basic hope that Jacob would learn to love her or at least treat her equally. That never happened. That, that is the problem with trying to get everybody's approval. Because you'll spend your life trying to do something which will never happen. It's a, it's a dead end street. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says that never happened. By the time she came to her fourth son, she focused on God, not on Jacob. Realizing that although not loved by Jacob, she was loved by God. And that's what counts. Amen? This is very interesting because from this fourth son, Judah, the Messiah is going to come. Genesis 49 and verse 10, much later on in the book of Genesis. We've got to wait uh, 19 or so chapters to get there. So we may not finish the side of the rapture. <laughs> Genesis 49 verse 10. This is what Jacob said at the very end of his life as he's sort of giving divine blessings, God blessing the 12 tribes through him. He gets to Judah and he says, The scepter, that's authority, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Shiloh is the Messiah. Who's going to rule this world with a scepter. And we're told right there in Genesis 49 and verse 10. That this Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. This is why Jesus is not just a ordinary Levitical priest. This is the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Where the Hebrews, who were Christians, were under persecution by the unbelieving Jews and they were rejecting the full revelation of Jesus as given in the New Testament and lapsing back into temple ritual, temple sacrifice. And the author of the book of Hebrews says, what are you doing? Why are you going back into the Levitical system? Don't you know who Jesus is? Don't you know that Jesus is higher than Aaron? Jesus is higher than the guy with Levi jeans, in other words. Because Jesus is from a different tribe. He's from Judah. 
And if Jesus was just going to be another run-of-the-mill, ordinary Levitical priest, he would have been from the tribe of Levi. But he was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And all of this is dialing back to these ancient prophecies that God is very specific where the Messiah is going to come from. Watch the Magi and Herod being intimidated by the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. And Herod asking his wise men, where's the Messiah coming from? They all knew exactly where he was coming from. Bethlehem of Judah. That's why he sent a delegation into Bethlehem to kill all of the Bethlehem innocents. They all knew that the Messiah was coming from Bethlehem in Judah, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells them that, but it goes way earlier than Micah. We're going way back into the book of Genesis where the Messiah is going to come from Judah. And Leah, as Judah comes forth, is praising the Lord because her value, she's starting to realize, is not coming from a man, it's coming from God himself. Amazing origin here in terms of messianic prophecy. You'll notice that in these these two sons, Levi, son number three, Judah, son number four, what has just come are the two great institutions of Judaism. The priests will come from Levi. The kings will come from Judah. And never are the two... To mix. Because if a king usurps the role of a priest, he's in big trouble. There is a a doctrine that most people in the United States are aware of called the doctrine of the separation between church and state. Church and state are separate. Now, I completely understand and I've done sermons against that, this mindset. You have very liberal groups, the American Civil Liberties Union, for example, the People for the American Way, all these sorts of groups where they want to come into the government and they want to purge Christianity out of the government. You know, take down the Bible verses, take down the crucifixion, because we have a separation between church and state in our country. And that's not what our founding fathers intended. And you know that because you can see the scripture from Leviticus 25 that they put on the Liberty Bill, 1776. You know, it's a very strange thing for people to do if they wanted to purge Christianity from government. What's the scripture verse doing on the Liberty Bill? And by the way, where did all these chaplains come from in the House, the Senate, the military, Christian chaplains? So the idea that you purge Christianity from public life is a false concept historically. However, the idea that the church and the state do different things, rather than separation between church and state, I prefer the separate sovereigns doctrine. They have two different roles. The church's role is redemptive. The state's role is more punitive. We don't want to put the sword in the hand of the church any more than we want the state to be running the church. I mean, look at the people running the government right now. You want them running the church? I sure don't. I don't even want them running the government, to be honest with you. I'm praying, trying to pray about that one. But th- this is a doctrine, separation between church and state misunderstood, but separate sovereigns, yeah, that works. And historical disasters happen when those two institutions merge together. You start getting strange experiments like the Salem Witch Trials, um, the Spanish Inquisition. We want to keep those sovereigns distinct. It's, it, it's not like the state shouldn't consult the church. The church should always be the conscience of the state. That's where the ACLU has it wrong because they want to just throw Christianity out. That's not right. But we do believe that these are separate institutions, separate sovereigns. And God at the very beginning was in favor of that. Because you have Levi, the priests come from there. Judah, the, the kings come from there. They're separate. They're distinct. 
And woe to the king that thinks he's a priest. If you want to know who got corrected on that, just ask Saul about it sometime. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 9. It says, So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. That's a king doing what the priest is supposed to do. Saul the king offering the burnt offering, which is in the providence only of the priest. Samuel, the prophet, was not having it when that happened. Samuel confronted Saul, 1 Samuel 13, 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. That's strong language. You just lost your kingdom, Saul, because you didn't respect the separate sovereigns that God has established. You're a king, and you should act like a king, and you got impatient because Samuel wasn't back in time to do the offering, and you started acting like a priest. You violated separate sovereigns. You just lost your kingdom forever. This um, mixture of the two offices happens again in a man named Uzziah. Much later on in biblical history, you read in Second Chronicles 26, verse 16, But when he, that's Uzziah, became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. Boy, I'm glad that never happens to people today. He was faithful to the Lord his God, excuse me, unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he, that's the king, entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah, a king, started acting like a priest. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him with 80 priests. Think about being confronted by 80 people. With 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand, for burning incense was enraged. If you find yourself when you're confronted by somebody and you're getting just uh, irrationally upset, you might want to take that to the Lord because that irrational anger could be a sign that our heart is wicked and we're moving into something we shouldn't do. Eighty people told Uzziah this, not the least of which was the head priest, and he just got angry. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, why was he enraged with the priests? Because the priests in this case were the truth tellers. The leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. See, Saul lost his kingdom forever. Uzziah became a leper because of this. The end of the paragraph, Second Chronicles 26-21 says, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Pretty steep price to pay for violating the separate sovereign's doctrine. And the only person that will merge those two offices is who? Is Jesus. That's why he's called the king priest or the priest king. And everybody else that wants to merge those offices together is is a wannabe. Somebody that's gotten a little bit of an inflated view of themselves. 
Because they're trying to do something only the Messiah can do. This is why in our study of the book of Zechariah that we did on Wednesday nights um, some time back, one of the major sections of the book concludes with the crowning of the high priest Joshua. The crowning kingship of the priest Joshua, Jesus' name, Yeshua, derived from that name Joshua, salvation. Jesus is just the Greek name of Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua is typified as the Messiah reigning in the millennial kingdom who has a crown, that's the king, verse 11, and is functioning as a priest, verse 11, of second, uh, excuse me, Zechariah 6. Verse 11, take the silver and the gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And you say, wow, the crowning of a priest. That sure didn't work in Saul's case. It certainly didn't work in Uzziah's case, but it's going to work in Jesus' case because he's the one that's going to take those two offices and bring them together in the millennial kingdom. He will be your king priest and woe to the man that tries to merge those offices ahead of time because they're trying to bring two things together that God says keep them separate until Jesus comes keep them separate keep them distinct don't intermingle the two until the Messiah the king priest takes his seat on David's throne in the millennial kingdom what, what, what you've just seen come into existence here in Genesis 29 through these latter two sons is God just took a very unfortunate situation. Leah being unloved. God opening Leah's womb. Barrenness continuing for Rachel. A man having two wives. I mean, I don't think you can even write a soap opera like this. God took an unfortunate situation and just created out of it two of the greatest institutions of Judaism. Judah and before him Levi. The priests and the kings. God just took two of the greatest institutions Judaism has ever known and will ever known and did it through a lousy situation. That's why I love this final sentence there in the Fruchtenbaum quote that we read earlier. Very bottom of the page, it says, The two key institutions of Israel, the priesthood, Levi, and royalty, Judah, came from an unplanned and unwanted marriage. And I'm here to tell you folks, there's a generation that needs to hear this. Because a lot of people, particularly young people, they look at themselves as, oh, I'm, an un- I'm unplanned. You listen to their stories. My parents really didn't want me. I'm an accident. You know, the, my other siblings, you know, they, they got all the attention, not me. I was an accident. I was unplanned. Of course, the theory of evolution kicks in. And we tell them in the school system that they're a biological accident. And you put that together with some unhappy family life, neglect, being unplanned. You, you hear them talk, gosh, my mother, she would have, if she had the money, she would have had an abortion. I'm not supposed to be here. And how this generation needs to understand this. That there are no accidents as far as God is concerned. There is nothing unplanned as far as God is concerned. And if you are alive in this generation, God chose you for this generation. You know, I've complained to people, you know, I'm just, I was, I was born old. You know, my, my mom used to say that to me all the time because I was like a little kid, you know, complaining about politics and all this kind of stuff. She said, you talk like somebody like 60, 70 years old. 
She says, you were born old. And um, I've often thought, you know, I think I was like born in the wrong generation because everything I believe in, the world seems to be going the opposite direction. But boy, maybe maybe my life is an accident. Maybe I was a maybe I was a mistake. But then you read Esther chapter four verse fourteen. For such a time as this, and you start to understand that well, you were born in this generation because God needs you in this generation. He didn't need you in prior generations because you would have just been talking like everybody else. He needs someone that talks like prior generations in the current generation. There there are no accidents. There are no freaks of nature. From the human perspective, there seems to be, but not from the perspective of God. And so we have the two great key institutions of Israel now coming into existence And notice how this paragraph concludes. Verse 35, then she stopped bearing. That's really not totally the complete story because when you jump down to chapter 30, verses 14 through 21, two more are coming through Leah named Issachar. And Zebulun, she stopped bearing for a reason and a season. And so this is just an amazing thing that's happened here. We've got Reuben, C. Simeon, here. Levi, attached, all named after, now my husband's going to love me. But then you get to Judah, where Jesus is going to come from, praise. Eyes off of self, eyes off of other people, eyes on God. And through something really lousy, the Messiah is going to be born. You mean God is going to take this and in son number four bring forth the Messiah? Which means that no matter how lousy your situation is, God can do something great with it. That's his specialty. As far as I understand the Bible, God never changes. He says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you think like he worked one way in Bible times, taking so-called accidents and turning them into something great? Do you think now he says, ah, that's what I did way back then. I don't do that anymore. He does it all the time. I mean, there are so many people I know that God is just doing tremendous things with, and you look at their life circumstances you say to yourself, wow, if I had their life circumstances, I'd be pretty miserable. But they got beyond it. They stopped looking at people and human opinion, and they looked at God, sort of like the way Leah is doing. And God takes ugly situations from the human perspective, messy situations from the human perspective, and does something wonderful with it. Because to God, there really are no ugly situations. Or messy situations. They're just ways for him to demonstrate his sovereignty. And so I I hope that encourages you. And I hope you tell this to other people. Because our generation needs to hear this. So many people feel that their lives are purposeless and never count for anything. That, that, That is foreign to everything I know about the Bible. So we have Jacob's dozen, which would be four of the twelve, right? And since there's eight more to go, I thought it would be too much to do today, so I guess we'll stop. But try to read through, for next time, Genesis 30, verses 1 through 24, and you'll learn about the next eight that are going to be born. 
And those situations aren't much better from the human perspective. Yet God is going to use them for very, very significant things. If you're here today and you don't know the God of the Bible, you don't know Jesus Christ, then you can't be tied into the one who takes messy situations and makes them holistic or pure or good. And so to be tied into this, you have to trust in the provision of Jesus who 2,000 years ago stepped out of eternity into time to pay a debt that we couldn't pay, the sin debt. His final words on the cross were to die, which means paid in full, not God bought lunch, I need to leave the tip kind of thing. 100% paid for. In other words, as a lost sinner, there's nothing really for you to do other than to receive what God did for you 2,000 years ago. And the only way to receive a gift from God is to believe in the one that he has sent. You'll find that in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. So as the gospel is proclaimed today, we just invite anybody within the sound of my voice, whether in the building, um, listening online, listening on the archives after the fact, watching anything, as the Spirit convicts you, our exhortation is for you as you come under that conviction to take your trust, which is what believe means. You take your trust, which means reliance, dependence, and you transfer it into Jesus. You stop depending on your own good works for your justification and you rely completely and totally upon the good work that Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. And just like that, you're saved. It's not something you have to raise a hand to receive, to walk an aisle to receive. It's not something that you have to give money to receive. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you come under that conviction. The Spirit has been dispatched into the world to convict men and women all over the world of this, their need to do this. And you just respond to it by trusting what Jesus did. You receive from God a free gift, salvation. Which means absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And what else it means is no matter how sticky your situation is in life, as you walk with the Lord, He can take whatever is happening to you and turn it around for good. That's His specialty. So we invite men and women to trust in the Savior. If you need more explanation on that, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for Your Word, Your truth and how it speaks directly into our lives. Help us to live these things out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said. Amen.